All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. It is a very special 100th episode and what we decided to do for our audience as a way of saying thank you is we actually did a live in-person event where people got to fire questions at me and I had no advance notice of what they were going to ask and we covered a lot of topics. We covered critical race theory, taxes, vaccine mandates, school choice, all of it fired at me, all of it having to answer on the spot. I think it's a great episode. We had some people come up and share some you know, just really personal stories with respect to what they're dealing with right now in their jobs with the vaccine mandates, what they're dealing with with their kids in schools right now. So I hope you like this episode. And if this is the sort of thing you'd like to see more of, more live audience events, please like, subscribe, leave a comment, let us know. But once again, thank you to all of our viewers for 100 great episodes, and we look forward to 100 more. Okay, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk for like five or ten minutes, but then this this whole event is so you can ask me questions, um, and so that's what I want to spend the time doing. Um, so first of all, obviously we have an election cycle this year here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the entire House of Delegates, as well as the Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, is all up and is all going to be on your ballot. And your ballot is already open, right? Early voting already started in Virginia. And everybody I know of, that whenever they're talking about this issue during an election cycle, always starts off with something like, this is the most important election cycle of our whatever. Generation, lifetime. I have never said that, and I never will say that because I think it's cliche. But I will say this. Elections have changed significantly since I can remember the first time I voted. So I, I want to I repeat a quote to you, and I want to see if you know who said it. Now, if you've already been in the room when I've asked this question, and you know the answer, you don't get to answer. This is for newcomers. Who was it that said... The era of big government is over. Anybody got a, anybody raise their hand? Anyone take a guess? Yes. It was Bill Clinton. Now, he didn't mean it, but once upon a time, not that long ago, not in a galaxy far, far away, the Democratic candidate for president of these United States felt it was necessary to say, not just to the general population, but to his party, that the era of big government is over. How far the debate has come in the last 20 years. And the debate that we see going on right now is very, very different than what we saw going on in the 90s. Because I used to be able to find people that I might have disagreed with politically, that I might not have personally voted for, but shared a similar affection for our Constitution, for what our country represented as far as individual liberty and self-determination, that recognized that there were some limitations on government and certain problems that the government didn't need to address because it was better left to free people working in voluntary cooperation with one another. That is not what is going on today. I am shocked 
by the fact that almost every one of my colleagues, even people I consider friends on the other side of the aisle, there doesn't seem to be a single issue that they don't believe the government has an active role to play in. And what I find disturbing about that is a fundamental disconnect. Because there are certain things that are legitimate functions of government. As evidenced by the flags that we see flying here, I think all of us support our military. We support law enforcement in order to enforce laws, but to do so within a constitutional framework, respecting civil liberties. We understand those roles. But one of the things that I'm willing to guess most of the people in this room also understand is that what makes government unique from the private sector, or what I like to call the voluntary sector, is government is the only entity in our lives that gets to use legal force to do what it wants. And the best way to solve problems that I've found, no matter where I've gone around the world in my military days, or even around this country, the best way to solve problems is empower free people to make decisions for their own lives. But when you take that away, because that is what's going on, when you take that away and you put it into the hands of a few select politicians or a few select bureaucrats, and you say, now you are going to decide what the solution is, and then you are going to impose it, that's not the building block of a free society. And the biggest problem that I have is not that I'm dealing with liberals. I can, I can find common ground with some liberals. No, my problem is that now I'm dealing with authoritarians. And that I do not have common ground with. Because I am very comfortable in a society where someone is free to live their life in a way that I might not share their values. Free to live their life in a way and make decisions that I would not make for myself or my family. But I will not live in a society where a political elite tells me how I will live my life, how I will raise my children. That I will not accept. So, what I'd like to do now is take your questions. So any questions that you have, you have political questions, philosophical questions, you want to know which John Wayne movie is best, I have the answers. So let's go ahead and take that. Wait, wait, what was that answer? It's not Chisholm. That's a good one, but it's not Chisholm. I would have accepted El Dorado or Rio Bravo, but anyways. All right, who's first? Go ahead the mic. Oh. Delegate Freitas, I was wondering if you could tell us what the stages on redistricting. I've heard there's some issues of dispute about 2020 mm -hmm. disputes, or we want Democrats to have more because they've gained <laughs> ground. So here's what's going on with the redistricting. So obviously every 10 years you have the census and then we do, we have the census and then we do redistricting as a result. Over the last two years, we changed the Virginia constitution in order to have an independent redistricting commission. And the idea behind that was, is that we wanted to make sure that we didn't have politicians selecting their own district or writing their own districts or drawing their own districts. And so I think we did something that was a little bit better than what they did like out in California. Out in California, they did what they call a nonpartisan redistricting committee. If you can show me a nonpartisan committee of any type, I will sell you a unicorn. Right? There's no such thing. So the question was is that how do we take as much politics as possible out of this process? And I think we came up with a pretty good solution. It wasn't perfect, nothing is, but it was pretty good. So we passed that. And when we got the census data back, the commission went to work. And now they've drawn several different lines for the House of Delegates and for the Senate. They haven't drawn, uh, drawn the US House of Representative lines yet. And 
some people are upset about it. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of the people that are upset are the Democrats, which is fascinating because when Republicans were in the majority, they, uh, they advocated, I mean, fought tooth and nail for this redistricting commission. And when Republicans were in the majority, we passed the bill for the redistricting commission. And then when they took control, all of a sudden they had second thoughts. Because if we didn't have the commission, they would have gotten to draw all the lines. So now we have certain senators on the, on the other side of the aisle that are a little bit upset with what they drew. So here's what's going to happen next. There's been a couple different, basically there's like a Republican uh, lawyer's line drawn and Democrat drawn. And then it's going to go back to the General Assembly and we will vote on it, probably in October. If we don't agree, it goes to the court. And the court will draw the lines. And that will decide what your House of Delegates districts, <laughs> House of Delegates districts look like, what your Senate districts look like, and then what your um, House of Representatives lines look like. Um, the one, now I, I have, my position has been we set up a commission to keep politicians from involving themselves in drawing these lines. The only thing I'm really upset about is in the, both of the lines I've seen drawn, I lose most or all of Orange County. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop coming here, but it would be very, I, I am not happy about the fact that I would be losing Orange County. But we should have, we should have some idea of what they're going to be in October, November, probably at the latest. But because the, the lines came back so late, the House of Delegates is probably going to have to run three years in a row. So we got to run this year, then we got to run next year, then we got to run the year after that. Uh, this year we'll have to run onto the old lines, next year we'll have to run onto the new lines. Yes, sir. We don't want to lose. Mr. Fried is in our district. Um, so apparently we have to rewrite our obituaries, if you hadn't heard about that, uh, from uh, Ralph Northam, his speech yesterday, if you hadn't had the experimental shot, that you pretty much need to rewrite your obituary. Um, and uh, yeah, he said that yesterday. And um, so he's in contact with superintendents across our state trying to mandate the vaccine for our children to be in school. And what can we do? I know a lot of people take their, they're taking their kids out of school. My kids are social, they love to be around other kids and we don't really wanna take them out. It's gonna be our last option. But what can we do to stop the, the vaccine? And they're gonna go after our religious exemptions as well. So, <clears throat> all right, first things first. If you want to fight back at the local level against these sort of mandates, vote for Chelsea for school board. What you also need to understand, though, is that a lot of this is being imposed on high by Richmond. And I would love to tell you that if we just simply take back the majority, we can fix all of that. And I would say if we take back the majority and we win the governor's mansion, we probably can fix a good amount of it. But I will also tell you this, as frustrating as the mask mandates and now presumably vaccine mandates are, that is not the only thing going on within your public schools right now. So my opponent, Annette Hyde, at the Orange Forum last Thursday, got up and said, CRT is not being taught in your public schools. Critical race theory. And I said, golly, that's interesting. Let me see if I can find a resource that might prove you incorrect on this. How about the Virginia Department of Education? Because it's right there on their website. Now, are they gonna have a CRT 101 class in your kid's history? No, they're not gonna do that. They're making it a requirement of your teachers in order to get or renew their licensure that they have to go through cultural competency training. Now, who do they list as references for this cultural competency training? Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility. Ibram X. Kendi, who believes that the only way that we can fight against past racism is through future discrimination. And who also believes that we need a federal department of anti-racism that would have the power 
to nullify any federal and state law that they did not think was anti-racist or sufficiently anti-racist. Now, how does Ibram X. Kennedy define anti-racism? Well, here's one way he does it. You have to be anti-capitalist. So this is the criteria they are using to train your teachers. So is your kid gonna get a class on CRT? No, their teacher is going to be trained on CRT and then expected to teach every subject through the lens of CRT. So that's going on at the same time that you have a governor that is trying to mandate that your seven-year-old wear a mask for seven hours a day in class because that's gonna work. You know, I have a very good friend who's a special ed teacher and he keeps telling me, he's like, Nick, we, we cannot teach children that need to be able to see our face when we are instructing them. They need to be able to see that nonverbal communication alongside everything else that we're providing. We're not going to be able to do it effectively. And this governor has decided that, nope, cloth masks are going to be mandatory. And now it's going to be you have to take the vaccine. Even though we have the latest studies out of Israel demonstrating that if you've already had COVID, your natural immunity as a result of having COVID is probably superior to the vaccination. Now, that's now anti-science. Apparently, natural immunity is now anti-science. So there's a couple different things you can do. One is make sure that the people representing you on your local school board are not only willing to stand up for what you believe, but they're willing to do it when there's massive political and legal pressure to do the opposite. Because I will tell you what every attorney that represents the local school boards are saying right now to their school board members. You can't do anything about it. The state has mandated it. You just got to do it. And you have some school boards that are willing to push back and be like, you know what? No, we're not doing that. We were elected by the people of our district to represent our district's interests. And we will stand up against a governor and his interpretation. And might I add a lousy interpretation of the Senate bill that he's referencing. And you have other people that just want to sit back and take the risk-averse option. Well, do our kids demand better? I think they do. So you need representatives on your school board that are actually willing to make the fight and make the argument. The other option is what you said before, and that is you pull your kids out of public school. Now, I will tell you, if you want to take that option, and it is an option that my wife and I took back when they were in fifth grade, there are more resources now than you can imagine. Homeschooling now is not homeschooling 20 years ago where you were basically by yourself and you better understand calculus. Because I don't. Calculus is voodoo and I stand by that statement. Right? Um, but the resources that you have with homeschool co-ops, the resources that you have with people like the Home Educators Association of Virginia or the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, these are both Virginia-based groups, the local organizations that are available to provide you the support, the learning pods, the thing that you need in order to be successful, they are there. And if you decide you want to take that step and you're worried about socialization, this is one of the most common things we hear in homeschooler. I will tell you right now that between sports and civic groups and church and everything else, my kids are not lacking in socialization. They are a bunch of little social butterflies to the point where sometimes it drives me nuts, right? So there are resources out there. Understand that you have options and that you're not alone in that process if you choose to take that option. And you can come up to me after this and I will be happy to assist you. Um, but vote correctly on your local school board fight back, show up to your local school board meetings. Don't let members get away with pleading ignorance. Nothing is more frustrating to me than watching a sitting school board member say, CRT is not in our schools, and then I read off everything that they're doing from the Virginia Department of Education, and their response is, oh, I didn't know about that. Really? Because last time I checked, it's in your job description. So you're either arguing from ignorance or you're lying to me and neither one is a very good look for someone that wants to represent a free people. Who's next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for coming out. So one of the things I would love for you to touch on is um, term loans. 
and why there's such an apprehension towards putting people into uh, uh, a point where they can't continue this 30, 50, 60 year career politician. The other part of it is too, is that we uh, have seen um, where employers to get employment now are mandating that you produce a vaccination card, which is against the constitutional aspect of, of um, how the religious exemption. You should never be tested ever on religious, religious exemption. But to see that being pushed openly and freely amongst our society is, is really alarming. So those two things, love to hear. So the first one on term limits, why is term limits so hard to achieve? Well, because in many respects, you need the people that term limits are going to affect in order to vote for the term limits that are going to affect them. And it turns out people like staying in public office. Now, I signed the pledge both at the state level and the federal level to support term limits. Now, here's what I'll talk about. There, there's, there's a lot of good arguments for term limits, and there's maybe one or two good arguments against them. I would say I would like to take it a step further. So I'll support term limits. And generally, term limits, uh, like Ted Cruz had a bill at the federal level where it was 12 years in each house. So you could do... 12 years in the House, 12 years in the Senate, but that's it. And the idea is, is that politics was never meant to be a career choice. It was meant to be a term of service. I actually don't think term limits go far enough. <laughs> I think what we need are citizen legislatures. Now, here's what's interesting. In Virginia, we have a citizen legislature. In 46 states, we have citizen legislatures. There's only five places where we don't. There's four states. It's like California, Pennsylvania, I forget the other two. Um, and then the federal government are full-time legislatures. So you are basically paying people to be full-time politicians. Always a bad idea. What is so good about a citizen legislature is that if you look at how we operate in Virginia, I go down to Richmond, and if it's an even year, that's our budget year. We do a biannual budget. So I spend 60 days in Richmond for the biannual budget. And then I go back to my district. And I spend the rest of the year in my district. Then I go back on an odd year. That's a 45-day session. That's an even smaller session. And it's primarily designed to fix problems, any issues with the budget. And then I go back to my district. Does anybody know? Don't answer. Does anybody know what a delegate gets paid in Virginia? $17,500 because it isn't meant to be a full-time job. It is meant to compensate you for the time you need to spend in order to legislate and handle constituent services. And other than that, go get a real job. And there's nothing better for politicians than having to have a real job. So... I, I think the thing that we need to be fighting for, especially at the federal level, is not just term limits, but citizen legislature. Make it to something where you cannot rely upon your income from serving as a representative as the primary source of how you pay the rent. Make sure that you have to operate within the same economy that everybody else does that you're representing. But having said that, I do support term limits, and the reason why I do is because ultimately I think that it's appropriate for the executive branch and the presidency, and I think it's also appropriate for the legislature, and the reason why is because the legislature has built an enormous bureaucracy, and so much of what we're facing right now is a result of the administrative state. And I've seen a lot of elected representatives that go up there and essentially they, they get caught in this cycle to where they just want to get reelected. They make good money doing it. They, they do well in the stock market, surprisingly enough. Um, and they forget the fact that this was never supposed to be a career. And so I think cutting this short will actually give us bolder representation and people less concerned about maintaining their power base over several decades. Um, 
Repeat your second question for me. So the second one was. Uh, oh, employer employer so mandates. Employer mandates. Yeah. Are really becoming more prevalent now, where uh, they're just saying like, you got to submit your. This has been a this has been a point of contention um, within the General Assembly. So I I am a rabid free market advocate. Well, part of the free market is respecting the fact that a business owner can set their own criteria for someone working for them. And every time the government interferes into that process, we give the government more power at the expense of the individual. So here's what I would suggest. I think the state should pass a law which is to say that we will not mandate vaccines. We will not mandate masks. That is not our role. That is not our responsibility. To, to the extent that we have a responsibility with something like a pandemic, it is to manage state resources in order to make sure that our hospitals don't get overwhelmed, that we provide support where it's at, but it is not to micromanage the economy or the individual choices of private citizens. Now, having said that, I think if we laid sort of legal groundwork, we would give employers the freedom to be able to say, because right now you have some employers that they don't want to mandate this, but they feel that they have to, or else there's going to be consequences from the state. So we have to make a deliberative statement on our part that says, no, it is not our, it is not our role to run your business. With that assurance, if, if a particular business said, we want to mandate this, the only problem I have with the state coming in and saying, no, you're not allowed to mandate it, is that once again, I'm giving the government the camel's nose under the tent to be able to say, oh, and by the way, we also want to tell you how to run your business here and how to run it here and how to run it here and how to run it here. And I am never in favor of giving the government more power over individuals and how they run their lives. And so that's the line that we have to draw to make sure that we are respecting individual liberty and individual choice. But with that, we're also respecting personal responsibility and your right to not only run your life the way you want, but if it's your business and your property, I don't want the government constantly interfering and telling you how to do it. I hope that answers. Yeah. Yes, sir. We got two back here. Sorry, Gina's coming. By the way, Gina is my legislative aide. And the only reason why my office runs efficiently is because of Gina. It's, she does, yeah. Um, my name is Jonathan and I'm a I'm a federal employee and have been one for about 16, well, 15 years. Yeah. Um, email came out from my agency telling me that these are my options. If I do not attest to vaccination that I'm not going to receive the vaccine, I will be so subjected to a five-day re-education training program. <laughs> if I refuse to take the vaccine at that time, I will be subjected to a 14-day uh, administrative leave without pay. Mm -hmm. If I do not subject to a vaccine at that time, I will be fired. Yeah. My question to you is, I've been a federal employee for almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I have a 20-year military career. Mm -hmm. I have never had an adverse evaluation in my life. What option do I have so here's at, one my, at my number one? And number two, a little bit more of a philosophical question. Mm -hmm. Every time that I re-enlisted, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Mm -hmm. What is a domestic enemy to the Constitution of the United States? Because when I, walk, when I look on the FBI, webpage, I can tell you domestic terrorism all day long because I work in that field. But I don't know by what a definition written down for me is what a domestic enemy to the Constitution is. So I don't really have a way to define it based upon an execution order or based upon an executive order. So I'm kind of in a limbo as to that regard. So that's where I'm, I'm at, and I just need to know what to do. No, first of all, thank you for your service. So the, the question has been is what authority does the federal government have with respect to their own employees? And that generally, the, the constitutionally, we give a great deal of deference to the executive branch with respect to that. 
So I did 11 years active duty, a couple years guard. I've been vaccinated with anthrax, smallpox, you know, a number of other things. So again, there's a certain degree of deference that we give to the executive branch that makes sense. We're now entering into a realm where I think the executive branch is requiring things that do not make sense. Now, what I will say is this. There is regulations, mandates, and then there's enforcement. And enforcement is where the rubber meets the road. Because if you actually lose a lot of the people that you're requiring or that you, that you rely upon to provide the services that the federal government provides, well, all of a sudden that creates a real problem. It's no longer as simple as just getting up there behind a teleprompter and saying, we're going to do this for the good of the nation. Now, all of a sudden, you've created a scenario where you're going to lose the very people you need to do the things that you say are for the good of the nation. So on my Facebook page, we did a link with something like, I think, 18 different entities that provide everywhere from support with respect to... Um, religious exemption, medical exemption, and legal representation. These are people that are looking for people to do class action lawsuits. And so I wish I could tell you it was as simple as demanding that the executive branch recognize that this is something different than some of the other things that they require members of the military or the executive branch to take. But we've already seen that's not the case. So it is going to come down to a point where you're going to have to have mass, a number of people that are willing to join into a lawsuit that are suing these sort of regulations and mandates in the hope that you're going to get a temporary injunction so that you can keep your job and that you're not going to be put on unpaid administrative leave. So again, I wish I had a better answer for you on that, but that's the best answer I can give you is that go to our Facebook page, look at the different legal organizations that are willing to provide assistance to you as you push back against these mandates and regulations in the hope that it's actually going to cause the federal government to change the course of action of the administration. Um, to your second point, what constitutes a domestic threat to the Constitution? What's interesting about that is that when I look at the Constitution, I see not only the Bill of Rights, right, which is what everybody generally wants to talk about when we, when we discuss the Constitution. They want to talk about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, Ninth, Tenth, etc. What I see within the clauses, within the sections, is I see enumerated powers. I see people that wrote the Constitution in such a way to where they were trying to be so careful and so meticulous as to articulate what the specific responsibilities of the federal government were so that they would not go beyond the power that had been delegated to them. They have gone against that since the early 1800s. So it depends on what you feel our obligation is as citizens within a free society to push back against that. Now, I don't advocate for any sort of violence against the federal government. I do not advocate for that. But is it time for peaceful civil disobedience? Yeah. Oh, you're damn right it is. Yeah. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. I'm just going to be very raw with you. Most people don't want to do what it takes because what it involves is not just anger, is not just activism. What it involves is sacrifice. It involves being punished. Rosa Parks was arrested. Martin Luther King Jr. was thrown in jail. Were they wrong? No, they weren't. They were fighting back against a government that was using the law in an inappropriate and immoral fashion in order to res restrict their liberty. And they were willing to pay a price to fight for it. And so the question I have back is what price are we willing to pay? And again, not advocating violence. I'm talking about at what point do we say, you can pass that law, but I'm not complying with it.
You can pass that law, but I'm not submitting to it because I believe it is a direct violation of our constitutional rights. And just keep something in mind because I almost get uncomfortable with that term constitutional rights because what it suggests is that your rights are derived from the Constitution. No, they are not. The rights are God-given. They are natural. They are not grants of government. But the question I have is that within the long tradition of the United States, we have seen generations that have been willing to stand up and say, we are not doing this. We are not complying with this. We will accept the consequences, but we will fight against this. And the question of our generation is going to be, do we possess the same resolve? Here, that will be answered when they come knocking. And I can tell you right now, there's a number of things that I put up with from my government that I do not like because it's worth it to live in civil society. And I will always, to the best of my ability, because I believe this is scriptural, as much as it is within your ability, live at peace with everyone. But there are certain things that if you attempt to enforce them, I will not comply. I hope that answers your question. Who's next? Everything we're experiencing right now has to do with one key focal point in time. And quite frankly, I have no confidence in our electoral system right now. And I don't think I'm alone. What can we do when that avenue is taken away from the citizen? What are we supposed to do when we can see blatantly the fraud that has been perpetrated? And we're called crazy for that. No, this has got to stop. And I mean, what, what, is, what have you got to say about that? So election integrity. It's a great question. I'm going to go through three things. Three things that you can do about it if you're concerned about election integrity. And I know I am. So here's the first one. You have to have laws which actually ensure that every person that is legally eligible to vote can do so and can do so easily, while at the same time protecting against fraud. The only way you can do that is if you have majorities in the state legislatures, which we currently do not in Virginia. And generally that, that leaves people incredibly frustrated because obviously if you're concerned about election integrity and you think it's affecting the electoral outcome, and we don't have majorities, we need majorities to fix it, well then how in the hell do you fix it? And that's why I'm going to go into two other things that you can do right now, that you can do, that you don't got to wait for a legislature, you don't got to wait for a governor, you don't got to wait for anything. Things that you can do to help improve or help secure against fraud. The first thing, sign up to be an election official. Here's what that means. You call up your local registrar here in Orange County and you say, I want to be an election official because I'm willing to bet. Here, here's one of the things I find fascinating. You look at election officials and these are the people that work at the precincts on election day. They're the ones that help count the votes. They're the ones that actually review things after the fact. They're the ones that, that make sure that the law is being followed and people aren't cheating. I'm willing to bet that you go in to the most conservative county you can find in Virginia right now, and most of the election officials will be on the other side of the aisle. You know why? Because they show up, they volunteer, they go through the training. Be that as it may, be that as it may. If we're concerned about it, here's how we fix it. You sign up to be an election official. That's the first step. Now, let's say that they're all tapped out on election officials. Next thing you do is you sign up to be a poll watcher. I'm not talking about someone that stands out on the front of the polling location and hands out literature and talks to voters. I'm talking about somebody that stands inside the precinct location and observes what's going on. And the moment they see anything that they think is outside of Virginia law, 
They've got a phone, they call up the attorneys and we can, we can identify it now because one thing I will tell you is that once that vote is counted, good luck going back and proving that it was illegitimate. So election official, that's number one. Poll watcher, that's number two. All you gotta do to do any one of those things is you call up your local registrar and you say, I wanna volunteer. Or you call up a candidate or your local party. You get with Paul, Paul Moog, and he can give you the document that says you are permitted to be a, a poll watcher on behalf of the Republican committee here in Orange County on election day. So there you go. Those two things right there you can do. Don't got to ask permission from your state legislature. Here's the third thing you can do. And please believe me when I tell you I cannot believe I'm saying this out loud. Voterly. And once upon a time, my attitude was, I vote in person on election day. That's how I do it. That's how I've always done it. That's how I'm going to do it. The only times I have ever voted absentee is when I was in combat and I had to. Here's the reason why you want to vote early. The moment you vote early, there is a unique voter ID number that is associated with you. The moment you vote early, that voter ID number is now registered as already having voted, which means nobody can order an absentee in your name. Nobody can show up and vote in your name. One of the biggest issues that we have with respect to people trying to commit fraud has to do with absentee ballots. If you've already voted and your voter ID number is checked off, they can't do it in your name. So again, I've always been an on election day in-person voter. I vote early every single election time now. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. And if those are the rules that we have to play under, then we should play by those rules in such a way that does the most to prevent voter fraud. So you can go down to your local registrar and vote early. I highly recommend you do it because there's another benefit the first benefit is election integrity. Nobody can order an absentee in your name once your voter ID number has been checked off. Here's the second benefit. I, as a candidate, can also access who's voted. I can't tell who they voted for, but I can access who's voted. Which means if you've already voted, I don't got to call you. I don't got to send you mail. I don't got to interrupt your dinner. So unless you really dig getting your dinner interrupted to hear phone calls from politicians, unless you just really, really love the idea of getting as much political mail as humanly possible during an election cycle, all right, voting early actually helps us use our resources more wisely. So I'm, I, I hope that provided something useful. <laughs> yes. Hi, I'm, I'm visiting here from Louisa, because I'm visiting with my friend Gail. And um, we went out of our way to try to get election officials this year in Louisa. Louisa's very conservative, but a lot of the times it's been Democrats who've been election officials. And I could tell you this year that the registrar told us we far outnumbered the Democrats as election officials. And it's because we just called people and told them, get to work. I'm not gonna be an election official because they're tapped out, but I'm gonna be a poll watcher. And one of the other considerations is not just your, I'm gonna be in the town of Louisa, but your local areas where they send the absentee ballots for voting and counting. They are, very, most people don't think about signing up to poll watch in those areas. They are a key area to watch for. So if you're gonna poll watch anywhere, do it there. And third, there's training for you. Um, Clarabelle Wheeler has done enormous amount of time. She does a great training online through the Yunkin campaign website you can find, or if you want to contact, talk with me, I can get you the address, okay? Thank you very much. No, it's, uh, look, and, and, and I get it. Like somebody made the comment before, well, we're at work. Yeah, I get it, I really do. The question that I have is we see what's going on, Yeah. So the, the bottom line is, is that if, if you're serious that this is about the future of our commonwealth and our country, 
Well, then again, it's going to require sacrifice. And so we're going to have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to do in order to make sure that we preserve the sort of country that we want to be able to pass on to our children? And, and I get it. I genuinely do. As conservatives, this is a general statement, but I have found it to be largely true. Here's our priorities. God, family, country, work, politics is a distant five. Right? And the only reason why we do politics is to keep the government out of God, family, country, work, right? But if you're, if you're, dealing, with, if you're dealing with somebody for which politics is not the first priority, but politics is God, family, country, and work. They're motivated. So at some point, it is going to require a certain degree of sacrifice in order to be able to make our argument. And, and this is one thing I want to say, and I always get a little bit of pushback on this, and I'm just going to be, again, very blunt, very raw. I don't care because I think I'm right. When I look at the person on the other side of the aisle, I do not see my enemy. And the reason for that is very simple. The most important thing to me, the number one thing to me, is my faith. Right? And so when I see somebody on the other side of the aisle who I disagree with, when I see someone who is even doing something that I think is politically or even morally reprehensible, and believe me, I've been to combat twice, I know what moral reprehensibility is. But Christ commands that I don't see another human being as my enemy. But the ideology, the ideology that I see them as being captured by, this idea that they are going to surrender on the hope that individual liberty provides in order to substitute it for a political elite telling them how to live their lives, that's the part that I despise. That's what I'm ultimately fighting against. I'm not here to defeat the other person on the other side of the aisle. Ultimately, we are here to rescue them. And if you look at it that way, it changes your entire mindset with respect to how you argue for this, how you debate for it, and how you fight for it. Because I don't want to, I don't want to wake up one day and find out that I've defeated half the people in this country. I want to wake up one day where the entire country is once again just absolutely in love with this idea that here, regardless of what the rest of the world does, here, each human being has inherent worth because they are beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of God and they have an inherent right to pursue happiness. Any other questions for me? Um, one of the things that's going on with you know, the vaccine mandates and masking and election integrity is people are kind of brainwashed. And one of the main reasons we have brainwash is 2016, you know, we could get around the mainstream media with people on Facebook could put out information big on the social media, you could get around the, 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 the mainstream propaganda. But they, now over the last couple of years, big tech has pretty much become big brother and is pushing only mainstream fake news and is killing anything that deviates from that. What can you do legislatively to crack down on big tech? So two, two things. Um, great question. Also, with uh, Keith Marshall running, here's another thing I want to tell you, because a lot of people have, are under this mindset that, well, the Second Amendment's not a local issue. It's a state issue, because we actually create the law at the state level. Yeah, that was true until two years ago. When the Democrats took control of the General Assembly, they actually changed the law to say that localities can now restrict and pass their own gun control legislation at a local level. So if you're not asking Second Amendment questions of your Board of Supervisors or of your town council, you are missing out on what it's actually taking place. Because we've already seen it in some certain jurisdictions where it, it, it's this ridiculous. You have a concealed carry permit or you have a rifle in your car because you're going to go to the range, and you're driving through a county. Well, if that county has passed legislation which says that that particular firearm is illegal in their county, you can now be arrested as a result of that. 
So understanding where your local representatives stand on the Second Amendment is huge. And let me just tell you this right now. Any sort of candidate, because I saw it the other night, I saw the same person that is the local chapter leader of Moms Demand Action, which is one of the most radical anti-gun groups in the country, say, oh, I support the Second Amendment. What does that mean to you? Because if what it means is, is that you're going to restrict or you're going to regulate or you're going to punish, well, then don't feed me this line that you protect the Second Amendment or that you support the Second Amendment. So it's very telling to me when you have a candidate that is willing to say, I absolutely support it and here's what I'll do versus those that want to make some sort of arbitrary statement of like, oh, I like guns. I shot a 22 once. That doesn't mean anything to me. All right. Second point. Um, with, uh, repeat the, sorry, repeat the second point again. Uh, what do you do about big, I mean, I oh, big tech, big tech. So largely, so there's two things. On the federal side, here's, here's one of the issues. Here's what big tech has done. They are, they are getting the legal protections of a platform, but they're operating like a publisher, right? So a publisher has to be careful because a publisher can editorialize. So a publisher can be on the hook and they can get sued for libel, for slander, for things like that, right? A platform cannot. And the reason why this all started within the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, everything else, was the idea that they didn't want AT&T to get taken to court because somebody picked up the phone and called their buddy in order to commit an illegal act. And so they made this distinction. They said, well, if you're a platform, then all you're doing is facilitating communication. You're not editing communication, right? Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, everyone else, they said, oh, yeah, yeah we're just a platform. Okay, but clearly they edit. And so the, the biggest work that needs to be done on this is at the federal level where you actually have people that are willing to say, look, if you want to be a platform, act like it. You are a platform. You don't edit and you won't be held responsible for what someone says or advocates for on your platform. But the moment you decide you're going to engage in this process of editorializing, you can now be held for libel or slander. Right? So that's the biggest thing that we need at the federal level for this. At the state level, we can do similar things where we essentially tell an individual, you are permitted to sue along those same lines. We, we can say at the state level, no, 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 you're not operating like a platform. You don't get the protections of a platform. Now, in order to get that legislation passed, you need majorities in the General Assembly and you need a governor that will sign it into law. But I think it is perfectly appropriate to distinguish you want to be a publisher? Edit all day long, but you have to take responsibility for your actions. You want to be a platform? Then that's all you are. You facilitate a platform in communication, and you do not interject yourself into the process of regulating speech. Now, does that mean that Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or whatever else, does that mean that they can't report something to the police if someone's engaging in human trafficking? No, because that's already against the law. But that's very different from them deciding that they're going to be editorialists while all the time pretending that, hey, all we are is a platform. So there has to be legal repercussions for that so that they, they, want to, they can choose which pond they want to swim in. You want to be a publisher? You want to be a platform. But make up your mind, because right now, they're operating like a publisher and getting the legal protections of a platform, and that's inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. How come we've gotten so far away from the nucleus of the family? Okay. Oh, I love this question. God bless you. Could not have been could not have been asked better if I had planted it myself in the audience. Um, how have we gotten so far away from the notion of people raising their kids, engaging in civility? Um, you know, a, a nation that respects a limited role for government, all of it, all of it. So here, here's, the thing I, here's the thing I want to put forward. I had a lot of people ask me, why is there so little civility in politics? And here's my answer. It goes back to what I said at the very beginning tonight. Government solves problems through force. That is how government solves problems. 
Now you might say, no, 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 it's a tax. No, 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 it's a subsidy. No, 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 it's a regulation. How are each one of those things imposed? Through force. Through the threat of violence if you do not comply. That is how government solves problems. Now, how do we solve problems? If you don't like the beer you got here tonight, you go to a different place. Right? If you don't like the food you got, you go to a different place. If you see a, a, a need or demand in the marketplace, you start a business, you start a charity, you start a civic organization. What do you re rely upon? Voluntary cooperation among free people. That's how we solve problems. That is not how the government solves problems. But if you have convinced an entire generation of young people that every time they see a problem, every time they see a challenge, that the way that they're going to solve it is by handing over significant amounts of money and power to politicians in order to solve it for them, what you have told them is to choose violence over voluntarism. And the stakes become very, very high in a society which relies upon politicians to solve their problems when they would be best served by allowing free people to work together when they agree and to leave each other alone when they do not. Absolutely the politicians are power hungry. The question is, is how do we respond to this? And the question ultimately is how do we get so far away from this? Well, ultimately, quite frankly, you have an education system which is teaching your children that every single problem that they have faced through, throughout the course of our U.S. history has been solved by some strong person in politics that solved it for them. You know how many kids right now are getting educated and being told that what saved us from the Great Depression was FDR? <laughs> Go look at the economic history of the 1930s. FDR caused the Great Depression. He didn't solve it. But if you have a child, from the moment they've entered kindergarten has been convinced that it is this grand, wise federal government that has provided them with education, with health care, with their school lunch, with everything else. And then they go off to a university system which reinforces that entire narrative. Are we really surprised that our country is at the state that it is right now? Are, are, we, really, are we really surprised too when all of the traditional institutions that we've relied upon to provide some sort of order and standing within society, whether it be the family or the church. Quite frankly, one of my biggest problems with the church in the United States, and I say this as an absolutely dedicated Christian, is that starting in the 1920s, the church decided it was more important to build really big buildings than it was to provide the various services and assistance to the poor and the needy. And you know what the church did? The church decided, we're going to hand that over to the government. Well, when you start rendering things to Caesar that Caesar was never designed to deal with, you get some real problems on your hands. And so this comes back to, so what do we do about it now? Right? What do we do about it now? Well, I will tell you this. One area where the left has just crushed us in this debate is that when they talk about the widow, the orphan, the poor, the needy, our response is that's not a government responsibility. And you know what? Intellectually, academically, empirically, we may be correct. But when we do that, we're telling them what's wrong with their solution. We're not addressing the actual problem. And the actual problem is there are poor, there are needy, there are the widow, there are the orphan. So who stands up in order to meet that need? Well, it used to be us. It used to be the church. But we decided we were going to delegate that responsibility to a government entity. And my wife has said it best. When you delegate to government the responsibility to do things that we used to do as individuals or members of a family or members of a community, instead of God getting the glory, government gets the glory and politicians have an insatiable desire for glory. So the answer, once again, has to do with what is our responsibility in that particular instance? How do we answer that? Fulfill the responsibility that we're supposed to fill as, as members of a community, members of a family, members of a society, members of a church. When my neighbor needs help, the last person they should have to think to go to is the government because they know I will help them if they need it. And you know what? I have been in that situation. I remember being a young private in the military. And someone staying with us because they needed help. 
And the next thing I know, I can't afford to pay the electricity bill. And here it is, December in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I can't pay the bill, and I'm watching my wife go cold. And you want to talk about a low point in my personal life, that was it. Now, I qualified for all sort of government assistance, but I didn't think it was appropriate. And you know who stepped up? Family, members of our church. And the difference was this, and the difference is significant. When it is somebody helping you who doesn't have to, you don't feel a sense of entitlement. You feel a sense of gratitude. You feel a sense of community that cannot be supplanted by a government redistribution program. And if you really want to feel that again in your communities, then we have to be the people willing to step up and actually provide it. And that is the only our response. So, so here's the question. And, and this is the part where I'm going to hammer back on conservatives a little bit. Because I've seen some conservatives say that the answer to the 1619 Project, which is horrible history, by the way, is the imposition of the 1776 Project. The answer to the 1619 Project is greater freedom and individual choice within an education. If our argument is purely, well, when we get the reins of power, we're going to impose this version of history. We have already given in to the argument that they want us to give in to, which is government should control education. Our founders didn't believe that. You show me, you show me the person within the United States that believed that it was the federal or even the state government's responsibility to be the primary purveyors of education within society. That province has always first and foremost belonged to the family. So I'm not advocating for put me in power and then I will impose this view of history, which I think is more conducive. I am confident enough in our history, in the principles and the ideas that I believe in, that I believe it can compete in a free market. So here's my problem with the way that we run public education within the United States right now. So let me go, let's do a thought exercise. I want you to imagine, because we all agree that education is important, right? Does anyone here not agree that education is important? Okay, good. We have consensus. Okay. Does anyone here not think food is important? All right, good. We have consensus. This is so easy. I want you to imagine that, let's say, somewhere in the U.S. history, the federal government decided that, you know what? Food is so important. I mean, we absolute, I mean, you can't do anything else if people are starving to death. Food is so important that here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the government in charge of food distribution. And so we're going to open up 10,000 government grocery stores across the country. And you're going to be assigned a government grocery store based off of your zip code, based off of your address. Now, when you show up to the government grocery store, you're not actually going to like shop for groceries. No, no, no. That's going to be determined for you based off of some sort of local bureaucratic board, which will then decide what goes in your grocery bag. Now, if you don't like what's in your grocery bag, don't worry about it. You can hire a lobbyist, and for the next four to six years, you can fight a legislative battle in order to determine whether or not you get a particular product within your grocery bag. And while we're at it, let's make sure that nobody working for the government grocery store ever gets rewarded based off of their creativity, ingenuity, or work ethic. They're just going to be rewarded based off of seniority. And none of this applies to the government. Wait a second. Now, does anybody think that is a grocery store you would like to shop at? That is exactly what we did with public education. You are assigned a government school based off of your address, you have no say over the curriculum, and none of your teachers are rewarded based off of creativity, ingenuity, or work ethic. They're only rewarded based off of seniority. 
It is amazing to me that when I explain it in those terms, everybody realizes the absolute absurdity of the system that we have set up. Now, is the solution for us as conservatives to come back and say, no, 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 we're going to completely revamp this and we're going to create a government system where we tell you the sort of history that we think you should learn? Or is the solution to say, you know what? You're a parent. You know about your children better than I know about your children. And so you're going to be able to use the tax dollars associated with your child in order to be able to get them the education that they want. And all you're going to have to do in return is respect the right of every other parent to do the same. Because I feel very, very confident that those schools which focus on literacy and mathematics and an understanding of science and an understanding of history from multiple perspectives are going to produce a far better academic result than the one that is imposed upon you by some sort of politician that's trying to get reelected. So that's the sort of system I want. I want one where we have a marketplace of ideas with respect to education. I don't want a government-imposed system. I want a marketplace of ideas, because everywhere else I see the marketplace work, I see the best ideas rise to the top. And everywhere where I see a government monopoly, I see entrenched interests constantly lobbying in order to benefit themselves at the expense of the people they're supposed to be serving. Hope that answers that question. All right, there was one other question. Somebody, uh, he let, well, that's what happens when you leave. You don't get your question. All right, once again, a, I, I will stay up here if there was a question that you wanted to ask that you didn't get a chance to. Thank you very much. Once again, can we please have a hand for Unionville Brewery? Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.